Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 31st of January 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Charles Mallet. Welcome to the programme, Charles. Thank you, Mike. Uh, and by video link from Damascus, Vanessa Bailey. Uh, we're going to start off today with online safety uh, and, uh, well, <laughs> the implications of the Online Safety Act start to make themselves known as of today. So uh, this is the graphic that the government was pushing out. Online abusers can now face prosecution for new communications offences. So they're talking about the usual th thing. They're they're wrapping up the censorship agenda in amongst other kinds of wrongdoing uh, online. Uh, but it's the uh, censorship agenda that we want to have a look at here today. So let's look at this particular piece of the text from the legislation because it says a person commits an offence if a person sends a message, good start. Uh, secondly, that the message conveys information that the person knows to be false. Uh, thirdly, that at the time of sending it, the person intended the message or the information in it to cause non-trivial psychological or physical harm to a likely audience. And finally, the person has no reasonable excuse for sending the message. So that's what the legislation says. Uh, let's look at what the implications of that are. Um, so first of all, Definitions, as we've mentioned many, many times before about this particular legis legislation, definitions broadly drafted, they can mean anything uh, and uh, would encompass an ordinary person sending any sort of electronic message. Uh, but here's the kicker, it includes the contents of any hyperlinked page or media contained in that message. So uh, don't share anything on the internet, you could find yourself going to prison for five years. Uh, and the next thing is, we do not know yet how the courts are going to interpret this offence. Uh, now, let's have a look at some questions. We would like to know what will the threshold be for uh, non-trivial psychological harm. Uh, we'd like to know what would constitute a reasonable excuse. Uh, we'd like to know uh, how would they establish that a person knew that the information is false. Uh, and how would they know that there was an intention to do harm? How would they know that? Uh, can they look inside people's brains? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Elon Musk perhaps can, but uh, I'm not sure the British government can. Uh, but anyway, um, my question really, and I'm going to open this up for discussion in a second, is uh, would this be constituting a harm under this type of uh, legislation? Uh, because, of course, uh, Boris Johnson, all the way through uh, coronavirus, was instilling fear, uh, was telling everybody to get vaccines uh, and so on. Um, and, uh, of course, then to answer the question of do we know that there was intent there? Well, of course, we do. Uh, and we do because of Spy B. So if you bring this on screen, um, Spy B was the Sage Group subgroup, which was uh, encouraging everybody to exploit fear. Uh, so they were talking about options for increasing adherence to social distancing measures. Uh, this was from the 22nd of March 2020. And as you can see, number two there at the bottom left, use media to increase a sense of personal threat because the government knew and certainly Spy B and Sage knew that uh, uh, the people weren't really taking the coronavirus situation terribly seriously uh, and they needed to ramp up the fear in order to uh, engage, get engagement and compliance. Um, and uh, of course, uh, <laughs> that absolutely, Charles, it seems to me, would fall into the intent aspect, but also the psychological harm and physical harm in the case of vaccines. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that's exactly the case. But intent is always the, the thorniest of these parts of legislation. Trying trying to determine intent is so so difficult. Uh, but in rare examples like this, it's it's very clear cut. I think what this will do 
is drive a huge amount of traffic for police who are already struggling massively with the existing legislation, both the Malicious Communications Act and the Communications Act, because the huge amount of sort of back and forth, he said, she said, offences or so-called allegations of offences are uh, almost impossible to, to really pin down. And I think this is going to follow that same path with, of course, the notable difference of the material that might be referenced by such a person making a communication like this. Yes. Now, of course, related to this issue uh, on Monday, Richard D. Hall was in court uh, to really establish what the rules are going to be when he finally goes to full trial. Now, the background to this is uh, the Manchester Arena bombing uh, and the follow subsequent inquiry and so on. Richard D. Hall uh, publishing information which uh, perhaps sh shed some doubt on the uh, veracity of the inquiry and the circumstances around the event. Um, then, of course, Mariana Spring and the BBC got involved in harassing uh, Richard D. Hall um, and uh, following that harassment and the, the various programming that they put out, the next thing was that uh, people um, associated with the Manchester Arena bombing um, took legal action against him, uh, claiming that he was uh, harassing them. Um, so uh, anyway, the question is whether or not he will be entitled to present his evidence uh, for the things that he published uh, at the court case when it eventually comes to court. Um, and certainly the lawyers for the uh, people that are bringing the case uh, are trying to persuade the judge uh, that Richard D. Hall isn't entitled to bring any of his own evidence to court because uh, the facts of the Manchester Arena bombing and so on were established by the public inquiry and other things. Um, so I'm glad to say that uh, uh, Ben Rubin uh, attended on Monday and uh, he had recorded this short clip. Well, he recorded actually a five or six minute uh, discussion with Richard, which we will show in, ex in extra on Friday in full. Uh, but here's uh, a short excerpt from this. Hello, Ben Rubin here from UK Column, just outside the Royal Courts of Justice with Richard D. Hall. Had a big day in court today. Richard, it's great to see you. Thank you. And um, just wondered if you had any thoughts. You just emerged from the courtroom. Well, I thought there was going to be a judgment at the end, either way, but uh, the judges reserve judgment. So, I'm a bit perplexed by that. Um, right. From my point of view, I thought it went very well. Um, uh, I, I don't even recall being interrupted, maybe maybe once, but that was to expand on something that I'd already said. So I wasn't stopped. I was able to sit, put all my points across that I wanted to put across. Um, at the beginning, we were a fairly small courtroom and there weren't enough seats. Right, so the, all of the people at the back were asked to leave because they were standing and then there was a bit of a uh, annoyance at that because they didn't want to leave and right. so it, it delayed the start by about 10 minutes Good because boy. people didn't have seats. Yeah. So my Mackenzie friend, Tony Bennett, he, he advised me, he said, look Richard, just, you know, we don't want to upset proceedings, so ask, you ask them to leave. Yeah. Which I didn't want to do that, Yeah. but just, um, that's what I decided to do. And I say you apologise to the court. I apologise for some of the people who've come along, they got in the court and then had to leave. I apologise for that, but we are going to get a transcript uh, and then distribute that to anyone who who couldn't, who wasn't allowed in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it sounds like people travelled from far and wide today to come and be here. And that was the case. People did come and uh, 
it's normal in the uh, Royal Courts of Justice, unfortunately, for these types of hearings to be in a small room and uh, therefore very few people can come in. Uh, but anyway, we, we'll talk much more about Richard D. Hall's case uh, on Friday. Um, where does that take us? Uh, extremism, Charles? Yes, it links very much to the previous segment, Mike. Thanks very much. You might have heard of the case, uh, the recent conviction, in fact, of a gentleman named Sam Melia at Leeds Crown Court written up by the CPS as being a far-right organiser found guilty of intent to stir up racial hatred through the distribution of stickers. Worth noting that it's listed under news terrorism. So what exactly is it that they mean by this? I've summarised the statement from the Crown Prosecution Service and bearing in mind the scales of justice should be balanced. Is their review of the circumstances to be considered balanced. They label him a far-right activist, telling us that he's convicted, that he belongs to a right-wing organisation, Patriotic Alternative, very much put in terms to suggest that, as an organisation, it should not be permitted to exist. He's distributed stickers via the online Telegram channel, so again, referring to sort of online safety, but also particularly demonising Telegram, uh, determining that he has the intent of stirring up racial hatred. Um, and rather bewilderingly, slogans expressing, expressing views of a nationalist nature. Now, th there doesn't seem to be any further comment on this, but why exactly it is that nationalists should be uh, effectively taken as being criminal is, is not clear. I'm also citing that a book was found by Oswald Mosley. There was a poster of Hitler and a Nazi emblem, and this was inside Sam Mealy's house. And I've spoken to Sam this morning, and we did talk about this. In actual fact, he did refer to the poster of Hitler, which he said is a humorous one belonging to his wife. Nonetheless, the CPS went on to say that the, or rather, sorry, the prosecution said these were the key signs of Melia's ideology and underpinned his desire to spread his racist views in a deliberate manner. Now, that is quite some extrapolation from finding those articles in his home. Um, they've also cited photographs of stickers at various locations around the UK. Uh, and also, again, going back to online safety, the fact that he's recommended sympathisers use a VPN, um, which again is something that UK Columns touched on before. Um, finally, CPS summarised by saying he was very deliberate in the manner he wanted to spread his messages of racial hatred and online messages recovered made it clear that he knew these stickers were being displayed in public and causing damage to public property. It is illegal to publish such material intending to stir up racial hatred towards others, and the CPS will not hesitate to bring prosecutions against those who break the law in this way, said Nick Price, CPS Special Crime and Counter-Terrorism Division. Now, again, having spoken to um, Mr. Melia this morning, he confirmed to me that the judge in the case made it very clear to the jury that freedom of speech lay at the heart of this case, and the judge even quoted even Beatrice, Evelyn Beatrice Hall from 1906, summarising Voltaire's position on this, saying, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Now, the offences were intent to stir up racial hatred and racially aggravated um, criminal damage, or at least uh, encouraging others to commit such an offence. So just looking at the definitions of exactly what those offences are, we've got from the Public Order Act 1986, use of words or behaviour, 
or written material, a person who uses threatening, abusive or insulting words or behaviour or displays any written material which is threatening, abusive or insulting is guilty of an offence if he intends thereby to stir up racial hatred or having regard to all the circumstances, racial hatred is likely to be stirred up thereby. So again, we return to intent and critically in, in the defence uh, of such an offence, a person who is not shown to have intended to stir up racial ha hatred is not guilty of an offence under this section if he did not intend his words or behaviour and was not aware that it might be threatening, abusive or insulting. So th this again is the crux of it. Um, sentencing is due to happen on the 1st of March and we'll just take a look at the Sentencing Council words on the offence of criminal damage racially aggravated. So um, the, right, just lost the connection on the forward side, so I'll just continue reading. But, um, it, it, but basically it categorises category one, serious distress caused, uh, thank you, Mike, um, down to category three, low value damage, low or minimal distress caused. Um, and the, the point here really is what, what, uh, harm has been caused by this, and indeed, how political is this as a judgment? So, just to pick an example, we've got Not Essential Political Merch, a website that sells stickers such as this one. And if you can't see it, it's a picture of a lamppost with a Save the NHS sticker on it. Now, I might be wrong, I don't recall any instances of any prosecutions referring to stickers such as this posted uh, and being labelled as criminal damage. And then, of course, the most notable example of all, or at least the, the one that I would say would be most notable, which is the COVID memorial wall opposite the Houses of Parliament, which has over 200,000 hearts um, painted onto it. If you're in any doubt as to whether that constitutes criminal damage, this is from the CPS. Any alteration to the physical nature of the property concerned may amount to damage within the meaning of the section. The courts have construed the term liberally and included damage that is not permanent, such as smearing mud on the walls of a police cell. I'm not sure quite where someone would get mud. I think they're referring to something else. Yes. Where the interference amounts to an impairment of the value or usefulness of the property to the owner, then the necessary damage is established. So this is very much a question of uh, one rule here and, and another there. Um, now, Sam's wife, Laura, has summarised um, the, the messages, some of the messages that uh, were included in these stickers, which are reject white guilt. It's OK to be white. We will be a minority in our homeland by 2066. White lives matter. Stop anti-white rape gangs. Love your nation. Now, I leave it for you to decide whether you think any of those are, in fact, intended to stir up racial hatred but it does not look like these are being treated objectively. And also worth noting that the jury were specifically directed to regard all the messages in their entirety, not to cherry pick uh, individual ones as though they could prove the case one way or the other on those. So we talked about patriotic, alter patriotic alternative and the suggestion by the CPS that this was somehow an organisation that should not exist. Well, it does. And this is what it looks like on Companies House, very much a legitimate entity. This is the front page of their website with a picture of Sam and Laura on it. And let's just have a look at uh, what, the, what they espouse on the website. I'd like before you do read this or before I read it out to substitute the word British for any other nationality and see how it might 
read. But here we have the British people are made up of the English, Northern Irish, Scottish and Welsh. They are the indigenous peoples of the United Kingdom and only they have an ancestral claim to it. The United Kingdom is the only place where the British people and they alone can realise their natural, cultural, religious and historical right to self-determination. So it goes on in that vein. And we then have freedom of expression. Um, freedom of speech will be enshrined for all British citizens. The so-called hate speech laws will be overturned immediately, somewhat ironically. And then the last uh, piece on this, uh, on their website, the UK has a right to enforce its own laws, including its immigration laws. Those living in the UK illegally have broken the law and must leave the country voluntarily or be deported. So how far away is that from the existing government policy in relation to, let's say, Rwanda? Uh, of course, the Rwanda bill at the moment, um, where the government plans to send admittedly a small number of migrants, but um, in a way not entirely dissimilar to what patriotic, patriotic alternative are suggesting. Now, if this has sort of struck a chord with you and you'd like to keep up with it, um, there is a Give, Send, Go page for Sam and Laura, which will have updates about the case on it. Uh, and indeed, there is a fundraising capability. But this does show, um, it, it seems, a, a particular bent for casting anybody with these sorts of views as being a dangerous extremist, which I think sets a very dangerous precedent in, in instances like this. Okay, thanks, Charles. Uh, Vanessa, let's welcome you to the programme. Now, uh, over the last few days, uh, we've heard a lot of sabre rattling now over Iran. Uh, so bring us up to date with this. Well, I'll do my best. I have to say there's a huge number of very conflicting messages being put out on all sides and also a lot of kind of misinformation, funnily enough, particularly from Western media. Um, this is in The Guardian, Iran on high alert as Biden mulls his response to the killing of U.S. servicemen. And then uh, on, I think it's Fox News, uh, Iran has told the U.S. fire intermediaries that if it strikes Iranian soil directly, Tehran will itself hit back at American assets in the Middle East, drawing the two sides into a direct conflict. The warning comes as Iran waits on high alert. Sorry, this is from The Guardian article to see how Joe Biden responds to the death of three U.S. servicemen deemed by Washington to have been killed by a Tehran-backed militia based in Syria. Now, I've crossed out Syria because actually it's the Islamic resistance in Iraq. U.S. bases in Syria and Iraq have suffered more than 160 attacks. Now, the claim is that the attack was on what is known as Power 22 in northeast Jordan. However, my sources here in Syria have told me that it was definitely targeting the Al-Tanif base, the largest of the illegal uh, 22 military bases inside Syria, which is um, an intelligence and terrorist recruitment hub. Uh, and in reality, um, if we can just move on, sorry, this is the Fox News report. Um, and this is a quote from uh, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North of uh, the Iran-Contra fame who said uh, the theocracy in Tehran needs to be told the next time a U.S. installation is attacked, a U.S. personnel, a U.S. ship, we're going to hold the Tehran regime responsible. Um, he then offered advice to Biden. This guy has got to start thinking strategically about things, not just tactically for political purposes. This administration is going to get us into World War III by not deterring people like Iranians. So 
clear doublespeak there because, of course, deterring the Iranians means escalating against the Iranians. Now, interesting, we've been having a lot of um, media speak and political speak in the U.S. about a withdrawal from Syria. However, here in Syria, we're actually seeing an increase in hardware, an increase in personnel in the last few weeks. And this article in Politico, uh, I think yesterday, actually says the U.S. has pulled resources out of the Middle East, which it hasn't. Now it's rethinking that decision. So let's have a look at what Politico actually says. Um, it, say, it claims that the U.S. has slowly begun to move resources back to the Middle East in recent weeks as violence escalates in Gaza, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, the Red Sea, and between Israel and Hezbollah on the border with Lebanon. The Pentagon has estimated that it will cost more than a billion dollars to rebuild its presence in the Middle East. So clearly the U.S. is not withdrawing as far as we can see, although there are negotiations ongoing in Iraq for the withdrawal of the U.S. presence, although we know from, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, I reported on the fact that the U.S. is building up ISIS forces again in the Quran, in the desert area um, of Iraq. Now, this is just a quick look at the bases uh, in uh, West Asia. So you have in Turkey, 2,500 troops, two bases. Syria, I added another 1,000 troops, so 3,022 bases, all illegal. Iraq, 6,000 troops, 12 bases. Also, one could argue illegal because Iraq has been campaigning for some time for those uh, bases to be uh, removed from inside Iraq. Jordan, 3,002 bases, Saudi, 3,005 bases, Kuwait, 13,000 troops, eight bases, Bahrain, 7,000 troops, three bases, Qatar, 13,000 troops, one base, UAE, 5,000, three bases, and Oman, 600 troops, six bases. Those marked in yellow are those that are effectively, um, to a large degree, normalized relations with Israel. Saudi, we know, is talking about normalization again, despite the situation in Gaza, Turkey and Qatar, although they are ostensibly opposing the genocide in Palestine, they are, of course, still supplying oil and materials um, to Israel, and they are heavily allied. Turkey is a NATO member state, and Qatar was responsible largely for funding the regime change war in Syria. Then we have a statement from um, Iraq's uh, resistance factions, but particularly from Qatar Hezbollah which announces its suspension of attacks against U.S. forces. Now, the reason for this may well be, as I pointed out here in the next slide, um, that uh, basically the group's involvement in operations against Americans, more than 160 attacks. One interesting point is that why is, such a, uh, why is there such an amount of furore over the three deaths in Al Tanif recently, when in the 160 attacks prior to that, there have also been injuries to personnel and deaths of American contractors and military personnel. But potentially, this poses a problem in that the Iraqi government still officially hosts American soldiers as part of combating the Islamic State, which, of course, we know is to be false. Um, the U.S. is effectively nurturing Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. And yet, Qatar Hezbollah has forces integrated into the Popular Mobilization Commission, or the PMU, which is officially under the control of the Iraqi government. So in my opinion, this is a bit of slate of hands by the Islamic resistance um, in Iraq. 
and they do say we will continue to defend our people in Gaza by other means. There has been an attack today on another U.S. base, I think, this one in Syria. So it could be that they're withdrawing Kataib Hezbollah, but that they will delegate to another member of the resistance faction that isn't uh, connected to the Iraqi military. That's just my reading of the situation. Then let's have a look at what the media is putting out. CNN, U.S. is unlikely to strike inside Iran. That comes from U.S. officials. Politico, response options include Iranian naval assets in the Persian Gulf, according to U.S. officials. U.S. sources, multiple Iranian leaders and so-called proxy leaders have been designated for assassination. Of course, it's worth pointing out that everyone that is um, protesting the Israeli genocide in Gaza has become a proxy of Hamas. Equally, any of the resistance factions in the region, although independent of Iran, they are allies of Iran, but they are definitely not proxies. Um, time to kill another Iranian general, perhaps. Representative Daniel Crenshaw, also of Texas, wrote on social media on Sunday, recalling the Soleimani attack. That might send the right message. It hasn't so far, of course. Iran has retaliated against assassinations on Syrian soil. Reports that the PMU bases in Iraq and Syria have been evacuated. And then let's have a look finally at an article from the New York Times, um, which states Biden's options range from unsatisfying to risky after American deaths. It goes on to say in the next section, um, but it's not yet clear who exactly Mr. Biden aims to deter. American intelligence officials say that while Iran provides weapons, funding, and sometimes intelligence to its proxy groups again, there is no evidence that it calls the shots, meaning it may not have known in advance about the attacks in Jordan. And again, I've corrected it to Syria. Also interesting, I mean, effectively, this is what the United States does all the time. It's providing the weapons that Israel is using to commit um, now what is perceived as plausible genocide by the ICJ against Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. Um, this is the inherent risk in Iran's proxy war strategy, said Ray uh, Takir, an Iran expert at the Council on Foreign Relations. It has been brilliantly successful, but only if the retaliation focuses on proxies and not on Iran's own territory. Now there is a real risk of things getting even more out of hand in the region. And then it goes on. Um, there are no good choices, but the deaths and wounds of so many US troops and SEALs. Now, interesting that the SEALs are actually mentioned here. So as I said, al Tanif is an intelligence base and a special forces base and a recruitment base for terrorist groups, including ISIS. This was from James G. Stavridis, the retired Navy admiral who now works for the Carlyle Group. A multi-day air campaign against all proxies, so that means bombing Syria and Iraq, coupled with a last chance warning to Iran is warranted. The Pentagon should be creating options that go directly against Iranian weapons production facilities, naval assets and intelligence systems in case the mullahs want to go another round. A strong offensive Cyber attack would be another viable option, either alone or in conjunction with kinetic strikes. So while Biden is ostensibly saying he doesn't want to escalate with Iran, um, the language both in the media and from Republicans and from Democrats says otherwise. Okay, thank you, Vanessa, for that. Okay, uh, we shall move on, if you like what the UK column does. You'd like to support us. 
uh, please uh, take a look at community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, and uh, your membership there would be very much appreciated. Uh, you could, could pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, now, yesterday at 1pm, Brian uh, uh, had an interview with uh, Moira, and Moira Dundee, the latest uh, Gutsy Women interview that is uh, will be up on the UK Column website today at some point. And tomorrow at 1pm, uh, if you would like to join us, uh, Debbie is interviewing James Roguski, and uh, this is a, a, an extremely important uh, interview, so do um, join us for that. We, we will have James with us uh, on the UK Column News on Friday as well, uh, but watch the interview first, 1pm live tomorrow, uh, if you can. Uh, now, let's uh, move on to uh, Steadfast Defender. Now, we talked about this. This is the NATO exercises going on in the Arctic at the moment. Uh, it's running now and will continue until May or so. It is the biggest exercise that they have run in a very, very long time. And of course, it's all about Russia uh, and particularly all about the Arctic. Now, uh, the House of Lords has published a, a report on this. Uh, it's called Our Friends in the North, UK Strategy Towards the Arctic. Uh, and uh, it's full of the usual type of rhetoric. Uh, this is from the International Relations and Defence Committee in the House of Lords. So let's have a look at what they're saying. Uh, developments in the Arctic are of a critical importance to the UK's security, environment and energy supply because this is the gift that keeps on giving because not only is this about war, uh, one of the major deep state events that's going on at the moment, uh, but this is also about climate change uh, because, of course, the Arctic has become a, 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 an important area because of climate change and the fact that uh, sea ice is disappearing, we're told, uh, and therefore... Uh, it's much more accessible and therefore it becomes a front uh, in the warfare. So they're saying, although the region was once an area of high cooperation and low tension, that is changing. And of course, this is the narrative that we were talking about with the uh, war rhetoric that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Times are changing. We're moving from a time of peace to a time of war. Uh, and uh, the Arctic isn't uh, immune from that. Uh, reduced sea ice coverage caused by climate change is making previously remote areas more accessible. That is very much the message. And of course, the reduced sea ice is why Putin is spending billions uh, building nuclear-powered icebreakers at the moment. Uh, I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, so, so little sea ice that he needs to do this. But anyway, we move on. Uh, the Arctic is now less insulated from geopolitical developments in other regions. Uh, Russia, China, Russia, China. This is the message uh, absolutely from the House of Lords. Uh, and of course, uh, it's going to remain central to Russia's military and strategic thinking uh, and Putin, uh, because it's all about Putin, Russia's leadership. So anything in uh, italics, by the way, these are uh, things that they would like the British government to do. Uh, so uh, they want to the, the UK government to prepare uh, contingency plans to detect, deter and respond to hybrid and grey zone activities. Uh, so keep the information war up, guys. Uh, and uh, of course, this is all because there's a sharp deterioration in relations between Russia and the West. Uh, they are, however, concerned that the UK has insufficient key military assets. So they recognize uh, that they are quite happy to bang the drums for war, uh, but we don't have the gear uh, to pursue that war. So what's it really about? Well, the next quote gives us a clue because we've got a signal commitment to defending the region. So this is all about signaling. It's about virtue signaling and posturing and psychological operations and hybrid warfare and information warfare and this type of thing. 
Uh, they say to avoid an, un an intentional escalation, the UK and its allies should ensure their actions are predictable. Uh, well, they're certainly predictable. Uh, and there are clear contingency plans in place in the event of an incident. Uh, and let's not avoid China because China has to be brought back into this uh, because we've got to worry about uh, Chinese-Russian collaboration in the Arctic and so on. Now, this is the latest report uh, to come out of government, this time from the House of Lords, uh, or at least from Parliament, this time from the House of Lords. But we've been getting quite a lot of uh, uh, propaganda from the media over the last several months. So let's just have a look at a little bit of this. So here's the Express uh, from, uh, where was this, December? Uh, Mutin, uh, malign Putin eyes new Cold War as he plots from Arctic to attack UK. Uh, then what have we got? The Guardian from uh, from June. The Guardian view on the Arctic threatened by Putin's war. Uh, we've got the Financial Times here from November. Russia and China are opening a new anti-Western front in the Arctic. Not just the media, also the think tanks. Uh, countering Russia's hybrid threats in the Arctic from the European Leadership Network. And all this uh, absolutely reflects what we saw a number of years ago from the Integrity Initiative. Uh, and uh, we remember what this was about. Uh, it was founded by the Institute for Statecraft. Uh, they had clusters of people all around the world working to pursue a, an anti-Russian narrative. Uh, the initiative's UK cluster members were recently disclosed to include several journalists, uh, several MOD heavyweights, several former current Foreign Office researchers of former Soviet republics, uh, whose reputation is based on their supposed impartiality as British civil service country specialists. The Integrity Initiative was blown out of the water because of the work of the UK column and a number of other uh, excellent organisations. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the intent disappeared. Uh, Vanessa, I don't know what your th if you've got any comment, comment on this, because we are just being propagandised. We don't have the military uh, capability to fight any war in the Arctic, never mind anywhere else but we are being bombarded with this rhetoric. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. We seem to be entering, um, as Grant Schatz uh, suggested, the era of war, but I'm not quite sure how all these wars, as you said, are going to be um, facilitated and uh, funded. Of course, it will bring profit only to the military-industrial complex, but it, yeah, it's quite extraordinary. Okay, thank you. Now, let's, uh, let's move on to the ICJ. Mm. Um, well, basically, I mean, I, I would direct everyone to my Substack, apologies for the advertising, where I have tried to collate together um, both analysis from Western journalists and commentators and from indigenous peoples and analysts. I interview Marwa Osman and I have quotes from various uh, Palestinians in Gaza, both journalists and civilians and so on, just to try and show the difference because while many Western analysts are hailing it as a historic victory. Many Palestinians are not. This is one quote uh, which people can go to the article uh, to read from Miriam Sharabati, a young uh, Lebanese journalist. We, the sons and daughters of this land, remain resolute on, in our cause. We don't seek acquittal, acquittal sorry, from the international court, nor do we wait for the international community's approval to exercise our right to resist and liberate any occupied territory especially from Israel and foreign military forces. For decades, we've paid a heavy price in blood and sacrifice aiming for liberation, the end of oppression and the preservation of our dignity and land. The failures of the international community and its courts are glaring, with examples like Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and Libya, 
where our suffering goes unaccounted for. The Arab-Israeli conflict remains the core issue in the Arab world, and we firmly believe that what was taken by force can only be reclaimed through force and the historically proven equation. So that's very much the essence of the response from many Palestinians and, and regional analysts. Um, I think my comment would be also um, not forgetting that in 2022, the ICJ did argue that Russia should immediately cease all military activity, um, despite the weakness of the claims by Ukraine. It ruled by 13 votes to two for a provisional order that the Russian Federation shall immediately suspend military operations that it commenced on the 24th of February. Um, why is it so unequivocal for Russia and why did it not call for complete demilitarization of the Gaza enclave to a safe distance from the prison walls that surround Gaza, um, a no-fly zone, um, and an end to uh, Israel's military activity? It didn't. Um, and so, therefore, the genocide has continued unabated with, in fact, an increase by the crimes committed by the uh, Israeli forces. However, then I'll switch to where there may be hope for the future, although I consider the uh, international justice system to be a very leaky, corrupt vessel that will sail very slowly towards any resolution um, or successful resolution uh, that are being discussed by Western Analysts. So first of all, we have the UNRWA, the UN agent, United Nations Relief and Works Agency that is the um, primary funder uh, in uh, all of the occupied Palestinian territories. Um, that there is potential for suspension of the funding, which would be catastrophic. Then let's have a look at what uh, UNRWA, uh, the major donors, pause funding for UNRWA. At least nine countries have announced that they are suspending or reviewing their donations to UNRWA, the UN's agency for Palestinian refugees, following Israeli allegations, though not proven, that some UNRWA staff participated in Hamas's October the 7th attacks. Now, why wasn't that claim made 116 days ago? Um, and I would add that Sweden has also been added to that list that has cut the funding. Um, Spain has put out a statement to government um, that it will not cut funding. So this just gives you, people can freeze frame and have a look at it later, but this gives you an idea of the concentration of UNRWA um, agencies in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and occupied West Bank and the besieged Gaza Strip. So it is, as I said, the primary UN agency providing aid. Then I just wanted to have a look at the fact that, that both the UK and the US are doubling down on the kind of no genocide by Israel rhetoric. Here's a little clip from one of the kind of most unpleasant people who is a spokesperson for the US State Department, John Kirby, who doubles down, as I said, on the no genocide. So if we can just play the clip. I want to be very clear, and I know I've said this a million times, and you're all probably sick of me following up on this, but that doesn't mean that we excuse any single innocent life lost. The right number of civilian casualties is zero, but there's no indication that we've seen that validates a, a, a claim of genocidal intent or action by the Israeli Defense Forces. Thank you. So, quite extraordinary. Kirby just basically flat out denies uh, the claims of genocide that have basically been supported um, by the ICJ. And what Craig Murray, a former UK ambassador, also pointed out was that they didn't 
support uh, the Israeli claims of self-defense. So then let's have a look at what um, Professor Francis Boyle, an international um, uh, international law professor, sorry, in the United States, has pointed out um, that could be the positive result of the ICG ruling. He says the Biden administration's aiding and abetting of Israel's genocide is a violation not only of Article 3E of Genocide Convention, but also the U.S. government's own Genocide Convention Implementation Act, which Biden himself sponsored as a senator. Countries abruptly cutting off UNRWA funds are now in violation of Article 2C of the convention, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. The Biden admins UNRWA funding cut is a felony under the Genocide Convention Act Implementation Act. Countries who send weapons to Israel can now be sued at the ICJ for their role in the genocide. He suspects the Biden administration will veto any resolution of enforcement in the UN Security Council, which, by the way, has its meeting this afternoon, I think now. It would then be turned over to the UNGA under the Uniting Peace Resolution, where there could be very severe consequences for Israel. The UNGA could, one, suspend Israel from UN participation, two, set up an international criminal tribunal and start prosecuting top Israeli officials. Three, recommend that all member states sever diplomatic relations with Israel. Four, recommend comprehensive economic sanctions against Israel. And or five, admit Palestine as a full-fledged UN member state. So while I don't think the ICJ ruling is going to do anything to help Palestinians that are continuing to be um, ethnically cleansed right now, I think what it may do is open the floodgates for um, both civil cases and international cases against governments and individuals for their participation um, in the genocide. Okay, well, following uh, the ruling on Friday, uh, Lawyers for Light on Telegram uh, put this uh, post up, and I just wanted to highlight this because I think it's a very interesting uh, it's it's something that others have talked about with previous conflicts, uh, but I think it's interesting that this has uh, come up again. So he said, uh, under both international and domestic law, the UK is required to prevent the transfer of military equipment and technology, including parts and components, where there's a clear overriding risk that such equipment and technology might be used to commit or facilitate a serious violation of international humanitarian law or international human rights law. Uh, these binding obligations are contained within Articles 6 and 7 of the International Arms Trade Treaty, as well as Criteria 1 and 2 of the UK Strategic Export Licensing Criteria. Criteria 3 and 4 of the SELC also prohibits the granting of a license when there's a clear <coughs> risk that the items would, uh, overall, undermine peace and security. International law also prohibits the UK from providing weapons with the knowledge that they would significantly contribute to unlawful attacks. Uh, I've reached my red line today. I'm writing to HMR HMRC, that's the UK tax authorities, uh, to withhold a proportion of my income tax as I will not pay the same for this government to breach the above. I will find out what the UK has received from arms sales to Israel in the last year and what, we'll, what they will likely get in the next tax year. And I, with, I will withhold a sum proportionate to these figures. I will be clear that I'm withholding said sum so that I cannot commit, so that I do not commit a crime under the International Criminal Court Act 2002 uh, or aid and abet crimes under the aforementioned provisions. I have reached the end of this matter, uh, the end on this matter, and accept 
uh, in doing the above, I will likely face prosecution, but my conscience will be clear. Uh, so, uh, Vanessa, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I just think that's fantastic. And I think that demonstrates what we were talking about over the last few weeks, that there are things that can be done. You know, you have to be prepared to take some consequence. But the more people that do it, the less consequences there are because they can't prosecute everyone if there are thousands rather than one or two. So uh, worth bearing in mind. Yes, indeed. I think we'll talk a little bit, a little bit more about that in uh, extra. Uh, now, surveillance. Um, and uh, well, the uh, Investigation of Regulatory Powers Act has been a controversial piece of legislation. Uh, because it basically allows the UK government to, well, what it did effectively was to legalise uh, activity by the intelligence agencies, which had been illegal up to that point. So they tried to retrospectively uh, make things uh, right. Uh, well, they want to amend, we've talked about this on the programme before, they want to amend this legislation. There's a bill going through Parliament at the moment. It's currently in the House of Lords. In fact, it had its third reading yesterday. Uh, and so it goes back to the um, House of Commons now. So this is progressing quite nicely. And I just wanted to remind everybody uh, what the uh, implications of this amendment to the Investigatory Powers Act uh, will do. Um, and maybe you might like to get active on this issue. So let's just uh, have a look at this. Um, government has decided uh, in these amendments to reduce what are what's already a weak protection against security services using our data illegally. So they're going to further weaken that. Uh, they have removed a reasonable expectation to privacy. Uh, anything you do online, it, it's considered a fair game. Uh, government has not explained why the reduction of privacy is necessary uh, rather than convenient. Uh, it potentially permits bulk data collection of facial images and social media data. So again, this is something which we all know is already happening. Uh, this will effectively make it legal retrospectively, perhaps, just as they tr attempted to do with the uh, act itself. It absolutely permits bulk data collection of internet, internet connection data, uh, and that is uh, something that is already enabled by the REPA, but uh, they want to make this even more uh, concerning, perhaps. Uh, it extends the range of politicians who can authorize the surveillance of other politicians. So anybody working in politics may want to consider the implications of that. It requires technology companies to inform government of any plans to strengthen security or privacy features in their software. So earlier on, uh, we mentioned the term VPN, and many people use VPNs. And of course, if you're using a VPN, that will help uh, re reduce the amount of data that you're passing over to uh, uh, security services who are, of course, uh, snooping on everything that's going on. Uh, but they... Tech companies will now be required to inform government of any plans to strengthen that security. But the reason they want that is because it also permits the government to veto any such uh, um, strengthened security or privacy features in their software. Uh, it enables the Secretary of State to require tech companies to provide services or facilities for the purposes of facilitating or assisting an intelligence service to carry out its functions. In other words, the tech companies have got to cooperate uh, with the security state. This effectively merges the tech companies and the intelligence agencies. And finally, it prevents tech co companies from disclosing any such services or facilities to anyone without permission of the Secretary of State. So uh, if they're working with the intelligence agencies, if they've received an order uh, that they must work with the intelligence agencies, they're not allowed to tell anybody about that. 
Um, this is extremely dangerous. Charles, I don't know where we go with it. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's exceptionally dystopian. Uh, I think exactly like you say, the blurring of the lines between these tech companies and the government is, um, is reaching uh, a, a point that it really should not have got to. And in fact, it's, it reminds me rather of the um, segment on the Davos uh, World Economic Forum the other day, where all the comms were shared between private companies and security forces. And, and I think the the consequences of this will be, will be absolutely terrible, how it gets stopped exactly, whether there will be any sort of anybody speaking out against it necessarily in Parliament seems unlikely at this point. Well, the usual uh, suspects are uh, certainly campaigning on this, the usual NGOs, um, but this is going to require a massive public outcry and uh, it's still not too late. It is going back to the uh, House of Commons at this point, uh, but it's still not too late to um, influence uh, the vote. Uh, if people wish to do that. So um, let's uh, move uh, back to the, the Middle East in a sense. And well, David Cameron, our wonderful foreign secretary, secretary um, has decided, Vanessa, that he would support the establishment of a Palestinian state, or has he? <laughs> well, yeah, a number of people have been messaging me and asking me about this. I have to say most of them have just considered it to be um, how to put this politely, nonsense from Cameron, especially at this stage in um, the ethnic cleansing program that's been carried out against West Bank and uh, particularly the Gaza Strip. But this may well be the reason why. This was an article that came out in um, Hebrew media uh, in the last 24 hours. Well, I think that hours. first one, sorry, that first one is is uh, is The Guardian just saying that he was considering recognizing oh, sorry, the Palestinian yeah, this one, state. But, uh, yeah, yes, so, sorry. So this, and this then, is... Yes, sorry. Yes. Um, and so I think this may well be the reason. This is an article that was published in the last 24 hours in Marev, which is um, an Hebrew language media outlet. Temporary uh, military administration and international coalition, Israel's plan for the day after the war. Um, the prime minister sends up an experimental balloon. The translation is always quite odd. A new several step plan formulated by the business group for the future of the Gaza Strip in particular and our relationship with the Palestinian Authority in general. So basically, because the translation is quite bad. I've just summarized the main points. I'm sure that it will be spoken about in various um, independent media outlets today and tomorrow anyway. So the Israeli plan calls for the establishment of temporary Israeli military rule in Gaza after the end of the war. I would also question the terminology war. It, 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 you can't compare it to uh, a normal war between two actual armies. Um, it stipulates the involvement of countries, including Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Bahrain, and the UAE. So again, countries that have largely normalized relations um, with Israel um, to establish a new Palestinian authority. So the current Palestinian authority, although very much in bed with the Zionist uh, regime, is going to be kicked out. Comprehensive reforms in the West Bank and a historic agreement with Saudi Arabia leading to the establishment of a Palestinian state. But what does that Palestinian state actually mean? Um, it's Israel secretly formulated a plan for post-war Gaza and presented it to the Americans to achieve a comprehensive settlement in the Middle East, which includes 
um, demilitarization of Palestinian groups and an alternative Palestinian governance totally under control of the Zionists. So what it effectively means, those cantons that are left intact of, of the ones that have been ethnically cleansed for the last 116 days will effectively then be entirely under Zionist military rule and occupation. So that, I presume, is what David Cameron is approving of. Yes, okay, thank you for that, Vanessa. Now let's uh, end today, uh, Charles, with uh, some updates on farming, or in fact, the continuing mm -hmm. decimation of farming, in fact. Well, certainly the apparent contradiction between the government's plan for what they're calling nature recovery and their push to increase our food security beyond the quoted figure of 60%. There's this out this morning, nature recovery to be accelerated as the government delivers on measures to protect land and sea. What do they mean by this? They're talking about something called 30 by 30, which is to protect 30% of land and sea for nature by the year 2030. Now, um, specifically, they're talking about delivering for nature and access. Now, this is a, a recurring theme in what the government are talking about now. So they've got a, an itemised list of things they're doing. But what I want to draw your attention to is putting us on track to have 70% of land in environmental land management schemes by 2028. Well, what exactly do they mean by that? And then they're talking about improving access to the countryside. So really what we're talking about here is the uh, removal of farmland from cultivation. And they cite specifically the, uh, the England Coast Path, the, what's now known as the King Charles III England Coast Path. The reason I highlight this is because it refers to unlocking some parts of our coast for the first time. Well, how exactly is this being done? And it's the Ramblers, which for our overseas audience is a, uh, a network and a group that protect the interests of people who walk in the United Kingdom, particularly sort of concerning access to areas for walking. And uh, just last week, they've referred to the decisions made on this environmental land management scheme. And the, the, the Ramblers talk specifically about the government re reference to public payments for public goods. So very much uh, how the, the sort of the money is concerned with all of this. And they refer to the technical annex in the environmental land management updates. We'll just have a look at this, which admittedly came out in June last year. But they use the phrase how government will pay for land-based environment and climate goods and services. But of course, it's not how the government will pay, it's how you will pay. And we are constantly hit over the head with the rhetoric surrounding leaving the EU and therefore taking control of how we manage subsidies and how we pay farmers. But again, we see that we're concentrating on schemes to pay farmers and land managers to provide environmental goods and services alongside food production. But what they don't really do is explain how the two can go hand in hand. There doesn't appear to be any upper limit on the amount of farmland that can be taken out of cultivation and put into some environmental scheme or other. I have actually asked DEFRA for exact statistics on this, which they will, I hope, come back to me on, but I don't have those to hand as yet. And we'll just have a look at what it is the Ramblers are referring to, which is the technical guidance or the technical um, uh, annex. And again, we've got the combination here or the link between landscape and food production. Again, the reinforcement of the message, uh, specifically paying for permissive access. So we're talking about 
paying farmers to open up access to the public, creating a unified access offer. So there's an awful lot of language around the public being able to access land that they might not be able to at the moment. But of course, that's going to cost money. We see here that £363 per visit will be available for a landowner that chooses to open up their newly, presumably, well, either newly or existing sort of woodland areas. Um, so the, the, the situation here really is that not only have we got farmland being taken out of production, or at least for that to be incentivized, and it's very easy to see how farmers would consider de-risking their existing business by going into a scheme that guarantees an income, or at least appears to guarantee an income. Of course, what this does is render them very much dependent upon such a scheme, but also vulnerable if the wind changes direction and suddenly this cash either dries up or indeed that the conditions seem less favourable or the scheme changes. They're not in any position to uh, change what they're doing, of course, because they're not cultivating any food. To get back into that marketplace would be very difficult. Talking of the marketplace and the market and the pressure that is faced by those that are producing food, uh, last year we talked about the petition to amend the groceries code, sorry, the groceries uh, supply code of practice. That was debated in the House of Commons last week. And the Minister for Food, Farming and Fisheries, Mark Spencer, in effect said that the changing the code itself was not the most appropriate way to do so. The key issue is that relatively few farmers sell directly to the supermarkets. And he said that uh, the government are therefore committed to using powers in the Agriculture Act 2020 to introduce statutory codes that apply across the whole supply chain to deliver fair prices to all farmers. So he has slightly dodged the issue there. Um, and what I would like to just mention in brief, or at least remind you of, is uh, a campaign that's been started admittedly online, and we never know quite where these things go, but No Farmers, No Food. This is a screenshot from yesterday, now garnered nearly 40,000 followers. Um, what I would like to do is ask if anybody has contact details for any of the people behind this. I would like to speak to them about this. And just before I ask uh, Mike for a bit of comment, um, I, I close with their comment on this, which is most apposite. The world can live without politicians, but the world cannot live without farmers. I mean, I, I wonder, Charles, uh, we, we're seeing all the protests in Europe. Most countries in Europe now have a farmer's protest going on because they are recognising the, the threat to their uh, lives, livelihoods and food production. Um, but we're not seeing similar protests in, in England in particular, and Wales. Uh, I wonder how much of that is because Brexit has allowed the British government to, to restructure the payments and the payment scheme is keeping them quiet at the moment. Yeah, well, it, it, it does seem to be the case. And again, as a sort of an appeal further to the contact details, saying if you, if you are aware of rumblings from farmers in your area and you, and you have found out on even on local scale, if, any, if there is any sort of hint of protest or any protest that is actually underway that we're not aware of, please do get in touch and let us know because that's definitely something we would want to report on. Yes, okay. Thank you very much for that. Now, we're just going to end uh, with a little bit of lightheartedness here. So here is uh, uh, Nippy, uh, who has been giving evidence to the uh, COVID inquiry today. Um, and uh, well, she's not worth the effort of talking about that in particular, but it was pointed out to us that unfortunately she's arrived in this Audi A6 estate here 
but uh, well, it's not MOT'd. <laughs> now, the question is, and maybe you've got a comment on this, because as you'll see there, there it does say on the government website, this vehicle may be MOT exempt. Uh, for more information, refer to the MOT exemption, exemption guidance. Now, the only exemption that we could that could possibly apply to this one is vehicles provided for police purposes and maintained in an approved garage are not required to have an MOT. Now, was that a police vehicle that she arrived in? Uh, she's not first minister anymore. Um, Very interesting question. Yes. Uh, I mean, that would be... Um, that would be extremely inappropriate were it the case, but might well be. I think the other the other um, exemption is a, a vehicle that's over a certain age. So unless there's actually an oh, incredibly only old vehicle underneath it, yeah. just put a smart Audi shell over the top of it. Perhaps it was that camper van that was yeah. parked on her drive that's been uh, repurposed. Maybe it is. Yes. Well, look, we've got to leave it there. Thank you very much to Charles and Vanessa. Uh, we will see everybody in a couple of minutes, uh, UK call members at least, for some extra Otherwise, uh, don't forget the interview with James Rogowski uh, tomorrow at 1 p.m. We'll see you on Friday for the news at 1 p.m. as usual. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.